15, 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, <laughs> After I am worn out, and my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Genesis 21, 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have bore him a son in his old age. Well, Merry Christmas to you. 
you can keep your Bible open if you have it open uh, to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 18. We'll, we'll spend most of our time in Genesis chapter 18. We're doing a little sermon series um, in this Christmas season called The Mothers of Jesus. And we're looking really at the great-great-great-grandmothers of Jesus. Last week we looked at Eve's hope, and next week we'll look at, uh, at Ruth's joy. This week we're thinking about Sarah's laughter. We're thinking about Sarah because the New Testament begins by identifying Jesus specifically with a certain lineage. The very first line of the New Testament goes like this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. The very first words of the New Testament connect Jesus with this story that we're reading about here in Genesis chapter 18 and 21. And it's a story that involves laughter, but not the kind of laughter like when you watch the Christmas movie Elf. The kind of laughter that we read about in Genesis 18 is very, very different, right? It's a different kind of laughter. Maybe we would say that it is a certain kind of laughter. Maybe we would say it's the laughter of skepticism. Maybe we would say it is cynical laughter. Maybe we would say that it is jaded laughter or hopeless laughter. And in this Christmas season, when we are flooded with images that are shiny and happy looking, when even our cups of coffee have words on them like joy, In this Christmas season, I want to pause in the story of Jesus' great-great-great-great-grandmother, Sarah. And I want us to think a little bit about this question. What does Christmas mean for those who are skeptical or for those who feel cynical, for those who feel jaded, for those who feel weary, for those who feel worn out? For those who feel ashamed, for those who feel done, what does the Christmas message mean for those who feel skeptical, cynical, jaded, or even hopeless? This question is important because for all of the shininess of the season around us, I know that very often if we look inside and pay honest attention to our emotions, there can be real senses of skepticism, cynicism, doubt, fear, depression, guilt, shame, hopelessness. I know this from my own life journey. I've shared before that when I was in my 20s, I took a deep dive into doubts and skepticism about the faith that I had grown up around. To those around me, I looked argumentative 
at times angry, inside, sometimes I felt free, sometimes I felt scared, sometimes I just felt numb. And as I share that little snapshot into my own experience of skepticism from years ago, I need to be clear that it's not like one thing I dealt with back then. Isn't it true that even as followers of Jesus across the years, we find ourselves feeling skeptical, sometimes cynical even, sometimes a bit hopeless? I recently reread a novel by C.S. Lewis called Till We Have Faces. Maybe some of you are more familiar with other novels of his, the, not the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Till We Have Faces is the last novel that he wrote. In my opinion, it's by far the best. And the narrator in Till We Have Faces introduces herself to us on the first page as a queen. But we quickly discover that she is a weary Worn out and jaded kind of queen. She tells us very plainly that what she is writing is her charge against the gods. And more specifically, her charge against the God of the great mountain. Who hides himself in mystery. And she says with a bit of an edge... I know he will offer me no answer. Maybe some of you can resonate with this worn out queen who wants to write down her charge against God even while she's convinced she won't hear an answer. What does Christmas mean for those who feel skeptical, cynical, jaded, or even hopeless. We're going to pay attention today to Sarah's story. And we need to notice a few, maybe three details of Sarah's story as we work our way towards something of an answer to that question. The first thing that we need to notice in Sarah's story in Genesis chapter 18 is we need to notice Sarah's hopelessness. In verses 1 through 9 of Genesis 18, we read this picture, this depiction of ancient Middle Eastern Bedouin hospitality. If this depiction feels very foreign and very ancient, it's because it is very foreign and it is very ancient. But in Bedouin cultures, even today, and in nomadic cultures in the days of Abraham, thousands of years ago, Hospitality was one of the most important values. And so here in Genesis chapter 18 verses 1 through 8, three visitors arrive to meet with Abraham. And quickly Abraham and his wife begin scurrying about making preparations to demonstrate hospitality for these three visitors. Now, in due course, we'll come to realize that these three visitors are the Lord and two angelic or heavenly beings. I'm not sure if Abraham knows it right away. 
the author of the book of Hebrews suggests that some that we ought, the, the book of Hebrews suggests that we ought to show hospitality because in doing so some have some have entertained angels while unaware of doing so in any case Abraham and Sarah are making preparations for these three guests demonstrating hospitality but then in verse 9 the story comes into focus these three visitors the Lord and these two heavenly beings have a specific question. Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? Isn't this interesting? The Lord has come not just to deliver a message to Abraham. The Lord has come specifically for whom? For Sarah's sake. Where is Sarah? And Abraham explains she's in the tent. And the Lord goes on to make a promise. Now that he has Sarah's attention, even if she's hiding back in the tent, uninterested in showing herself to the guests, even if she is back inside the the tent in hiding, the Lord has got her attention, he's got her ear, and he's got something to say to her. And what is he going to say? In verse 10, the Lord says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, important detail in verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So, verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, Saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? When the Lord comes to find her and speak a word of hope and promise, what is Sarah's first response? It's a response of hopeless laughter, we might say. She describes herself as, quote, worn out. And we need to realize there's a whole history here behind Sarah's hopelessness. This doesn't come from nowhere. About 25 years before what we read in Genesis chapter 18, the Lord had made these incredible promises to Abraham, or to Abe, we can call him, and to his wife. These incredible promises, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, Abe, I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a massive promise to make to one Bedouin nomad and his wife. But what's the problem? They don't have any children at all. So how is the Lord going to make good on his promise 
to take one Bedouin nomad and his wife and make of them a great nation through whom every family on earth will be blessed. How on earth is that going to come about without a son? Well, those of you who are familiar with the book of Genesis know there are some twists and turns. There are some zigzags. The plot line will involve sin, doubt, and faithlessness, we might say, on the part of Abraham. It will involve great personal pain for Sarah, especially as she watches Hagar bear a son for Abraham, even though her whole life she's never been able to bear a son for Abraham. And we need to understand that in that time and in that place, to be childless as a woman was to be worthless. I don't mean in the eyes of God. I mean in the way that culture would have viewed people. In those days and at, those, and at that time, having children was understood to be the primary Mark of value and honor and dignity in the life of a woman. And so to be married for your whole life and to have no children was like a mark of shame. I mean, even in our culture today, on the other side of the world and what, 3,000 years later, even today... It can be alienating to be a woman without children, right? It can be emotionally uncomfortable. You can feel like other people are judging you. You can feel like other people are asking questions in their head. You can feel like other people are looking down on you. And sometimes, unfortunately, other people are judging. See, even today... Thousands of years later and on the other side of the world, I'm not talking about the way that God views you, but in the way that culture views people, it can still feel like it's alienating to be a woman without a child. Multiply that experience over and over and you begin to understand what Sarah was suffering through Not for a few months, but for years. They received this great promise. And then a decade goes by and 15 years go by and Hagar has a son, but still Sarah doesn't. And 10 more years go by. 25 years have passed in between the promise and seeing it realized. And somewhere here in this gap between the promise that she heard in the past and seeing it realized in the future, Sarah is beginning to feel a little bit skeptical, a little bit cynical. A little bit worn out. A little bit done. So much so that when the Lord himself comes to find her, 
And when the Lord himself reiterates his promise, what does she do? She laughs. Not the way you laugh at Buddy the Elf, but the way you laugh when your body doesn't know what else to do with this deep emotion of skepticism and cynicism and doubt and despair and hopelessness. She's got 25 years of history. And a lot of good reason at 90 years old. 25 years of history and we've got to admit a lot of reason to doubt God's promise. We sometimes have this narrative that we think about as if like, You know, people in the Bible were just dumb, ignorant, ancient people who didn't know anything about the way that the world worked and were like very sophisticated and we've got it all put together now. And people back then, they just believed in miracles because they didn't know any better. Meet Sarah. God himself comes and says, I'm going to do this for you. And what does she do? (laughs) She laughs. The first thing that we need to see in order to understand Sarah's laughter and Sarah's story is we need to understand Sarah's hopelessness. Even when she hears the Lord's promises brought directly to her doorstep, she's so deep in hopelessness that all she can do is laugh in despair. But the next thing we need to see in order to understand Sarah's laughter and Sarah's story is we need to see something about Sarah's God. You see, here in this passage, the God of Sarah seeks her out right where she is, even at her lowest point. The God of Sarah doesn't sit back on high, watching and waiting with his arms crossed, thinking to himself, well, if Sarah will just have a better attitude, I'd be glad to do something for her. The God of Sarah descends and meets her right where she is, not after she is done with her skepticism and cynicism and doubts and hopelessness. But the God of Sarah comes down to her doorstep and begins speaking his promises into her life and meets her right where she is in the midst of the doubts, the cynicism, the skepticism, the hopelessness, the despair. And my point in saying that, my point in drawing our attention to that, is not to encourage you to become more skeptical or cynical. But maybe my point in drawing our attention to this 
is to give you space to be more honest about where you are. And I think my point in drawing our attention to the God of Sarah who draws near to her in the midst of her hopelessness is so that we can see that the God of Sarah seeks us out not after we're done with our doubts, despairs, and skepticism, but right while we're in the midst of it. And maybe for somebody here today, you need to hear that to begin taking heart. The God of Sarah seeks us out. And why does he seek Sarah out? The God of Sarah seeks her out in order to establish the promise in her heart. It's interesting, there's a contrast between Genesis 17 and Genesis 18. In, in both chapters, the Lord makes very specific promises about a son for Abraham and Sarah. But beyond that, things are very, very different. In Genesis chapter 17, the Lord shows up for Abraham in the middle of the night. In a dramatic and almost frightening scene. And he reiterates his covenant promises to Abraham. And Abraham laughs at the Lord in doubt and despair, just as Sarah will in Genesis chapter 18. And the Lord reassures Abraham, I'm going forward with this plan that we've talked about. But here we are in chapter 18, and now it's the middle of the day. Everything is light outside. No frightening visions, no thunderous voice, just the Lord drawing near in the form of three people who look like ordinary Bedouin guests. And in his thunder in the darkness to Abraham, and in his gentleness in the daylight to Sarah, what is he doing? He's reiterating his promise. He's reassuring his people, even though it's been 25 years of living between the promise that you heard in the past and the fulfillment of it, which still is in the future. Even though the years have passed by, I'm still at work in this mission that I've promised to accomplish. And how is the Lord going to establish Sarah? He meets her in the middle of the day. He comes right to her doorstep. He reiterates his promises. But then notice this especially. How will the Lord establish his promises in Sarah's heart? Above all, by reminding her of who he is. Look with me again, if you would, at what the Lord says in verse 13. After Sarah laughs to herself, feeling the weight of the years and the sin and the shame and the grief 
Feeling the weight of it all, she laughs in skepticism. And then notice what the Lord says in verse 13. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Notice this in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Or there's probably a footnote there. If your translation sounds like mine and says, is anything too hard for the Lord? There's probably a footnote there in your Bible that sends you to the bottom of the page and tells you that a better translation of that word is probably wonderful. How will the Lord establish His promise with Sarah by drawing near to her and drawing her attention to who He is? Over and above the effects of time, sin, shame, despair... God says, is anything too wonderful for me? Sarah, you may have lost your faith in humanity. Sarah, you may have lost your faith in the way that things work in this broken and fallen world. Sarah, you may have lost your faith in what you can ever accomplish in your own strength. After all, she's just said to herself, I'm worn out. Nothing left that I could contribute. But the Lord says, even if you've lost your faith in humanity, even if you're jaded by what you've seen in the world, even if you have absolutely no confidence in what you can accomplish on your own, even when you are at the depths of despair and darkness, even there, the Lord draws near And says, Sarah, I have a question for you. Is anything too wonderful for me? And of course, as we read, or as we heard in Genesis 21, the Lord does deliver on what He has promised. The Lord is going to move forward with His plan of redemption. And maybe we say that's cool that God did that for Sarah to give her a son. But does that mean that God will give me whatever I desire? And I think the answer to that question goes something like this. No, but maybe. Does that mean that God will give me whatever I desire? Is anything too wonderful for Him? Does that mean He'll give me whatever I desire? We need to begin answering that question by saying no. Because God is not a genie in a bottle who just gives out sports cars and romantic relationships as if He's a vending machine for the American dream. But at some point, we also need to stop And say in response to that question, does that mean that God will give us what we desire? We need to stop and say, wait, maybe. Do you know what the Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis says about our desires and our longings, our deepest yearnings in life? I'm sorry that I didn't get this one on the screen, but... 
What C.S. Lewis says about our deepest longings in life is he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not to be too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And C.S. Lewis suggests we are far too easily pleased. And when we take this into consideration, this idea that perhaps our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak, perhaps our problem is not that the Lord doesn't want to give us what we long for. Perhaps the problem is we're looking for it in the wrong places. We're looking for it to be fulfilled at the wrong time in the middle of the story. And in the wrong ways, by containers that aren't big enough to contain what we truly and ultimately yearn for. And so, perhaps, we end up much like Sarah. Hearing the Lord's offer of life and life to the full. And yet we keep saying, but could I also have fill in the blank? But what I really need is that thing right here in the middle of the story. From that container that's right out there. Like Sarah, we hear the Lord's greater promises as a part of His greater story that He's writing and that He will surely fulfill. And we find ourselves laughing and saying, for real? For real? So when we hear Sarah's story of disappointment, despair, and we hear her laughter of hopelessness. And then we see the Lord give her a son. Her dreams coming true. And we ask the question, does that mean that the Lord will give me whatever I desire? No. Not exactly. But wait, maybe. Because like Sarah, we too live in this gap between great and massive promises of the Lord in the past. And here where we live in 2023 and 2024, we're still looking forward to a time when finally those promises will be fulfilled in their fullness. The problem It's not that our desires are too strong, but too weak. That we're far too easily pleased. Too often we find ourselves making charges against God. 
like a child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what could be meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. In fact, in Sarah's case, even at 90 years old, she's still in the middle of a much greater story that God is writing. Not only will God give her a promised son of laughter in Isaac, but you see, many generations later, God will send a heavenly messenger to one of Sarah's daughters. A young woman who did not even have a husband. And this heavenly messenger would tell her as well that God was in the process of accomplishing his redemptive purposes through the promised son of Abraham. And the angel told her also, quote, nothing will be impossible with God. And so with Sarah's descendant, Mary, our Lord Jesus was born. Even at 90 years old, Sarah's story was still just in the middle. Hardly at the end. Hardly ready to make an assessment of the whole. Do this in the simplest way I know how, except that it's still incredibly beautiful. You know that little story Bible that's good for grade school kids, the Jesus Storybook Bible? Sally Lloyd-Jones, she puts it like this. One day God would send another baby. A baby promised to a girl who didn't even have a husband. But this baby would bring laughter to the whole world. This baby would be everyone's dream come true. I told you earlier we need to notice a few elements in the story of Sarah's laughter. And we've noticed... Sarah's hopelessness, and we need to be honest about the fact that we reflect that in our own lives. And we've noticed Sarah's God, who makes his promises and keeps on going, who draws near to us in in the lowest moments of hopelessness in our lives, and who keeps on going in his plan of redemption. But now we need to see one more element of Sarah's story. We need to notice also Sarah's faith. Maybe after hearing the story read earlier, somebody will say, wait a second, Sarah laughed at God. How could we call her an exemplar of faith? Come on now. But this isn't an interpretation of Sarah's story that I'm making up just to make a point in the Christmas season today. Notice what the book of Hebrews says about Sarah, that woman of laughter. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11 says, quote, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. This woman of laughter, this woman who in her hopelessness laughs at God, ends up being an exemplar of faith. One who is held up to say, you want to know what, you want to know what faith looks like? Think of Sarah. 
by faith. Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age. Why? Not because she had some great faith in humanity. Not because she knew the world would all work out fine. Not because she believed that she could do it on her own. Why? The book of Hebrews says, since she considered him faithful who had promised. You see, along the journey, somewhere in those, somewhere in that journey of 25 years from the promise made to the beginning of the promise being fulfilled with the son of laughter. Somewhere in that journey, the Lord was at work transforming Sarah within. Um, Beth Moore in her uh, memoirs has this beautiful line. She grew up in an abusive home. And she has some profound reflections on the messiness of life in an abusive home and the family relationships that can grow out of that. And here's just one line of her reflection. She says, We want to be known, but not memorized as if we cannot change. Isn't that a powerful statement? We want to be known, but not memorized as if we cannot change. And somewhere through this journey of pain and hardship, somewhere through these years of being hurt by sin, somewhere in these years of the wounds of shame, somewhere in the middle of these years of feeling like there was no hope whatsoever for everything she had dreamed of, the Lord came and found her and assured her personally, I'm still at work and I'm not done with your story. Sarah, your story is not over yet. And somewhere in that journey, Sarah became an exemplar of faith in the Lord. Why? Because she said, as much as I've experienced and as many reasons as I have to look around the world around me and say there isn't a whole lot of hope. And as much as I'm convinced I'm worn out, not able to accomplish this for myself. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Apparently that rock bottom place. To borrow words from someone else. Apparently that rock bottom place for her became a solid foundation on which to build a life of faith. I began with a question, what does Christmas mean for those who feel skeptical, cynical, jaded, worn out, weary, done, hopeless, down, discouraged, What does Christmas mean for those of us who feel like this in the middle of a season of shiny wrapping and words like joy? In a word, here's what I want to say to you. The God of Sarah invites you to reframe the story of your life today. 
Let me speak for just a moment to those of you who feel the hopelessness in a particular way. As I said earlier, my goal is not to encourage you exactly to feel more cynical or more skeptical. But maybe to realize that there is a seat at the table in the kingdom of God for brothers and sisters just like you. To realize that our Lord, who came down once in appearance to find one skeptical woman named Sarah, came down in the flesh to ransom for the Lord countless millions of people like Sarah and me and you. And to bring us near to the God of Sarah. Maybe today he's seeking you out and maybe it begins right here with realizing maybe there's more to your story than you've yet dared to imagine. And maybe I can speak to those who feel very stuck in the middle of this long journey of faith. Maybe you feel especially deeply as if you're living in this gap between promises you've heard and fulfillments you haven't yet seen. Christmas gives you also a chance to reframe your circumstances in light of a much wider story. Christmas invites you to hope. And it invites you, like Abraham and Sarah, to grow strong in your faith as you continue to trust Him who promised as if He is faithful. And what assurance do we have? It turns out that we are given the same sign as Sarah in a way. But we too are given the sign of a son. Unto us a child has been born. Unto us a son has been given. And although in his first coming, he came in humility and gentleness and weakness. And although in his first coming, he willingly submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. Here is our assurance. To us a child is born, to us a son is given. And one day all government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of true peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The message of Christmas invites us to reframe our lives in light of that story. And therefore, it invites us to trade in the laughter of worthlessness, to trade in the laughter of cynicism, to trade in the laughter of hopelessness in exchange for the laughter of true joy, the laughter of true peace, the laughter of true praise joining with countless millions, singing the song of Sarah's true and greater son of laughter, 
our Lord Jesus Christ. Reframe your life in light of his story today. I'd like to invite